nothing beats the brand value you get when a customer calls your call center and says, I'm late by day, I'm so sorry, what's the late fee? And the rep says, oh, there's no late fee, don't worry about it. She's like, holy mother of God, I'm going to tell all my friends about you. The most interesting data corpus that we've gathered over the years is actually our own history. One of the things that I really wanted to do with Affirm, I wanted to sort of capture the opportunity to define what the company is beyond its commercial aspirations. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Mikkel Svane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode, I'm very excited to have Max Levchin, a true serial entrepreneur and Silicon Valley veteran who's now the co-founder and CEO of Affirm, a GGV portfolio company. I'm also excited to have my fellow GGV Capital managing partner, Hans Tung, as my guest host for this episode. Hans led our investment in a firm. Thanks, Glenn. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. This episode is a crossover show with our other podcast on tech entrepreneurship on China and China-related business models called 996, which I co-host with Zara. So Max is an engineer by training, but around 20 years ago, he co-founded the company that ultimately became PayPal along with Silicon Valley legends Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, and he served as its CTO for several years. Later in his career, he went on to found Slide, a developer of social apps, which was acquired by Google, and Max became a VPNG at Google for a period of time. He was also the first investor and former chairman of Yelp, and has been on the boards of Yahoo, Evernote, and several other Silicon Valley startups. He's also the co-founder and chairman of Glow, a data science company that empowers women and couples to take control of their reproductive health. In late 2011, Max started a startup studio called HVF Labs, which stands for Hard, Valuable, and Fun, that was intended to explore and fund projects that create value by leveraging data. In early 2012, Affirm was spun out of HVF. Affirm's mission is to deliver honest financial products to improve lives. It is a financial service company that offers installment loans to consumers at the point of sale. Affirm allows shoppers to pay for purchases across multiple months with transparent, fairly priced fees built into every payment. Late last year, we at GTV were proud to become a partner of a firm. So there's obviously a ton we could cover with Max today. We're going to focus on Max's experience as a founder and his journey with a firm. Max, welcome to Founder Real Talk and 996. Thank you for having me. You name your incubator HVF, which stands for hard, valuable, and fun. Yet you have said that there are three criteria for evaluating projects you're likely to involve in. Why is and how is a firm hard, valuable, and fun? I'll try to explain what HVF is, and then uh, hopefully a firm will obviously fit all three criteria. So HVF, the name actually came from a conversation I had with Peter well over 20 years ago now, very early days of PayPal. I was typing away at some project like midnight when he walked into our first office and asked me, what are you working on? And I sort of rattled off whatever some something I was working on and said, oh, that's interesting. That sounds really difficult. I said, yeah, this is a really hard problem. It was not a PayPal-related thing. It was just like a side project. It's like, oh, what do you, you know, why do you do this? I said, well, it's really hard. And he sort of, sort of stared at me for a while. I was like, well, but is it valuable? 
I, I don't know. It's just really difficult. He said, I, you know, I know way out. He sort of blurred out, you know, the inference only goes one way in this one. If it's valuable, it's typically really hard to do. Mm-hmm. I can name a lot of times in my life where I'd work on something really hard and be like, yeah, well, that was a really cool project that didn't really add any value to the universe, <laughs> but uh, I sure had fun working on it. And so I definitely took care to choose valuable projects as the first order of priority, but it turns out that most valuable things are actually quite difficult to do. Yeah. The fun part came much later. So Slide, which was fundamentally a social media and sort of video games, really, like you cut to the core, yeah. it was an entertainment company. And it's kind of the opposite of what it sounds like. So I really loved the team we put together to run Slide, and yes. I enjoyed every person I hired, and it was a you know, good outcome ultimately when Google acquired it. I never had any fun. Right. And reason for it, is it turns out that I don't like video games. Right. Not only that, I don't even like entertainment that much. I like coding, <laughs> I like running companies. Solve hard problems. Solving hard problems. At some point my wife told me, you're no fun, that's why you're not enjoying this. <laughs> and I said, well, you're not the I, first person to hear that heard that comment from the wife. And so after slide journey was over, you know, I had completed my, my mission at Google, I actually sat down with my wife and said, All right, you have to help me figure out what to do next right. because you called it, like, you know, Every computer scientist, every nerd I knew in high school, the dream job was to work for a video game company. Right. I got to run a video game company, and I didn't have any fun. So help me figure out the next move. And she's like, well, the last time I seen you really have fun is when you were beating your head against the wall of some of the really difficult security problems at PayPal. Right. So one, consider going back to financial services. Two, don't try to be something you're not. Like right. You're not ever going to be... That guy who loves video gaming so much, he dedicates his life to building them. So find what you know fun for you is, as opposed to what everybody else thinks fun is. And so I end up writing a fairly lengthy essay for myself, basically like you know, a letter to to Max. When you start your next company, think about hard doesn't necessarily mean valuable. Valuable has to be hard, otherwise everybody would replicate it. And find out what it means for you personally to have fun. From that conversation, I sort of spent a bunch of time thinking, and eventually said, you know. PayPal never really dug below the rails. This mm. sort of a payment industry jargon, credit card rails is what Visa MasterCard provides, and then everything above it is above the rails, and below the rails are the issuing banks, which actually lend the money and take the risks, and people generally don't go there. It's right. very hard, you can lose 100% of the money, you mm-hmm. can never make more than a couple of percent, so it's a very asymmetrically distributed risk-reward thing. Right. But if you dig deeper, you find all kinds of yucky things like Late fees that account for more than half the profits and right. deferred interest, which is kind of an ugly way of making money because you promise somebody a free loan, but then you find a way to charge them interest anyway. for the part that was yep. actually supposed to be free. Right. So the more I read up on that stuff, the more I sort of recalled all those things from the PayPal experience. Like, oh, I should go there. Like that sounds like a gnarly little place to open up and really try to make a difference. And the more I would talk about it, the more people's eyes would glaze over, except for the few <laughs> people that were like really sort of payment nerds. And they're like, wow, that sounds like a lot of opportunity. Like, we should really do something about this. Right. And like, yeah, I'm having fun just thinking about it. So, right. I'm like, all right, hard, valuable, and fun. I should right. go do this. So, that's how a firm came about. So, a firm is, is HVF, hard, clearly very hard, obviously could be very valuable, and fun for, for, for certain people, for, for payment, certain types. payment nerds, for okay, certain okay. people. <laughs> I'm that's, proud of my payment nerdiness. Right. You have so, a smart wife. That's good. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I don't think I've ever Better heard wise. about a, a founder writing a letter to his or herself prior to starting a company to kind of really try to crystallize what it was they wanted to accomplish. But that's, 
that's maybe something we should start recommending other people think about doing. It's very useful. I rewrote it and rewrote it over and over again, and then when it was done, I thought it was a sort of private note to self, but I sent it to one friend who proceeded to send it to his kids because he was so impressed with the logic. So like this was not meant as a as an a letter to society, <laughs> but uh, in retrospect, I thought actually, like had I read this letter before starting my video games company. Maybe I wouldn't have spent seven years trying to build something that I wasn't especially uh, well suited to do. So, speaking of a firm and, and you being very well suited to do it, you've talked about the fact that millennials and young people more generally are not enamored with the financial institutions of uh, the prior century and are open to looking for a new answer, you know, help them in their lives from a financial services aspect. And you want to be that, a firm wants to be that next generation solution, that online financial institution that can help that class of customer in an efficient and honest way. There's obviously a very well-established banking industry that you're kind of going up against in some ways. What about that industry makes it right for disruption? Lots of things. For one, even 1% of those customers choosing to commit their financial decisions to a startup like a firm necessarily means billions and billions of dollars because Finance is probably largest or second largest market in the world. Yep. I mean, maybe energy might be the larger market, but finance is really up there in terms of scale. Just a basic stat on credit cards alone, revolving credit accounts in the U.S. in the last eight, uh, 12 months were a trillion dollars. Right. So it's a pretty big nut to crack. And you know, if you can make a difference for a small number of people, we want to make a difference for a larger one. The other thing that makes it compelling and, and interesting vast majority of banking institutions in the US and even non-banking sort of lenders and service providers are not software developers. There's an interesting side note there, uh, hopefully I'll get to in a second why this is the case, but every single one of them are amalgamation of software packages that were acquired and integrated in or sometimes stitched together. So if your average bank has something like 100 software systems that were provided by different third parties, mm-hmm. most on-prem, some in the cloud. If you look at, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to read jobs pages for companies like Amex or Chase or you know, any of these companies that actually are arguably in their own industry are more technology-centric companies than you most. COBOL programmers but, well, and not, not only So the, the amusing part, of course, the initial is like, oh wow, they're still hiring COBOL people. Well, good yeah. luck with that. And then like, well, you know, AS400, like, I know people who used to code in AS400 and they're retiring now and they're being asked to not retire. My mom was one of these people. Oh, she, wow. was, she was persuaded by her employer not to retire for a couple of years in a row because they couldn't find anybody who could write fourth D on an AS400. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's kind of that, that's a superficial like haha these guys are in you know 500 years ago. But then you look more carefully like actually they're using Python and JavaScript and fourth D and Lua and Haskell and Erlang. Wow. And so it's not just the fact that they're sitting on ancient technology is that they're sitting on every imaginable mishmash of old technology. Yes. So if you're saying hey you know what let's Introduce a brand new kind of loan. One of the decisions that they have to make is, I mean, where would fix. we build it? <laughs> yeah. What what part would we have to change? And like, it's almost a certainty that if you employ a meaningful number of Haskell programmers, you're probably also not rich with Erlang engineers. Like, right. one of those two came from an acquisition or some place where you're no longer prepared to support. And so, these crazy collages of software decisions make these companies. Incredibly vulnerable to disruptors that come in with a brand new stack and say, We're going to build everything on one system and one language, one set of frameworks. And 
By the way, we're still employing every single person involved in a design. So when we want to modify it, we can literally call the guy or the girl who put this stuff together and said, hey, how would you add this feature? Mm -hmm. And so the ability to execute on the software side very quickly is really powerful. The other side of it that's a little bit more subtle but sort of really came true with a firm, a lot of these companies, if they ever had a sense of mission, it's been gone for a long time. And it's really hard to get the very best software engineers, generally the very best people, but certainly software engineers because it's such a hot job today, to join companies that cannot speak to a sense of mission clearly. So yeah. if you have choices, if you're you know, a computer science graduate from CMU or MIT or U of I or any one of these like top flight computer science schools, you're not really thinking, oh, will I make enough money to feed my future family? You're thinking, what is the coolest thing I can work on? My computer science degree is a key to any door. Right. So flying cars or AI or something that inspires me. And the one industry normally that you don't think like, wow, that's truly inspirational. Like I'm going to go work for a bank. Fintech. <laughs> well, so so fintech, the type that has an inspiring mission actually stands to benefit. At the, you know, if, if you woke up one morning and said, you know, money is interesting. It's such a right. fascinating concept. I want to work on something to do with money. Until a firm, I would argue, choices where don't because you're going to work on some crazy monstrosity of software decisions that you would not enjoy, right. or go to Wall Street and just uh, be sort of, uh, yeah, in back office, yeah. yeah, you know, pin, pinch your nose and yep. trade and yep. uh, or build software for traders. Right. And so a firm created this place and company where mission comes first, and we're all here because we want to make the world a better place, and we're doing it through changing the way money is paid and and transacted, but it is about the mission more than just about anything else. And there is that subset of people that say, I want to work on interesting financial systems, somewhat aided, by the way, by the emergence of cryptocurrencies, because lots of people woke up and said, oh, I didn't realize money was such an interesting, big and important thing right. as a technology, as opposed right. to just money itself. So I think that that's why the disruption in this particular space is now, as opposed to other times. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation and to, to pull on this thread a little bit more. I remember back to a time when we invested in Square in 2010 timeframe, and I asked Keith Raboy, who at the time was was COO over yep. there, you know, how are you guys able to manage fraud so well? And he just had a one word answer, and it was Max. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> but Max Levchin, but he doesn't work here. And he said, yeah, but we're still using his guts. <laughs> yeah. Well, first he said you helped, so thank you for that. Uh, and and hopefully you got some advisor shares or something for that effort. But I, as a matter of fact, I did. Okay, good. But he, you know, Keith reminded me that at PayPal, really the biggest problem to solve, if you think of PayPal as the first sort of venture-backed fintech, fintech company out, out there, there, the biggest problem to solve was how do you manage to figure out who to underwrite and avoid fraud, right? And I think with a firm, those must be two big issues that you guys have had to overcome. Can you talk a little bit about how you're doing that? I mean, you are the the father of this this uh, science, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a legend in my own mind. Um, Keith is too kind. Uh, I did have a hand in several companies, actually, anti-fraud or fraud management systems over the years. There was an infamous email I wrote to Elon Musk many, many years ago during our time at PayPal. The subject line was, fraud is love. And it was obviously totally ingest, and it was mostly right. mostly freaking out about the fraud numbers we were seeing and kind of going, like, what the hell are we going to do about this thing? Right. But also sort of committing to be the guy who goes and figures it out. But uh, 
in retrospect, it was more than a joke. I've actually really gotten to like so the science. Well, it, it's the closest thing you can get to like cloak and dagger. I'm a closeted fanatic reader of spy novels, and this right. is the closest thing you can get to spycraft if you're a fintech yeah. nerd right. or payments nerd. And so, anyway, I'm actually like the problems a lot. But yes, I worked on those in you know, PayPal years, and then helped Square a little bit. So, uh, given the business you guys are in. Any new wrinkles that you've had to deal with? Yeah. So part of the reason why fraud is so interesting is that it changes all the time. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting truisms about fraud is it's hardest in the early days. So the good news about humanity, as I found out through experience, there's actually a fixed number of bad people that really want to rip you off. That number is probably kind of changing up and down, but it's not growing proportionate with the size of your company. Mm. And so in the earliest days, bad guys go, oh, cool, new target. Let's go have fun. My job is to steal money. And incidentally, fraud is a very asymmetric threat type problem Absolutely. because they have to be right once and then you're out right. of business. You, right you have to be right every day. Of them. Yeah. Or yeah. 99.8% of the time, it would be a good, acceptable target. And so the thing that happens though is the, the fraudsters, you know, some of them probably retire and some go to jail, but most of them just kind of do this because that's how they make their living. But they are a very creative bunch and they come up with all kinds of wacky new ideas. So during PayPal, Notion of synthetic identity was like kind of theorized about one day bad guys will figure out how to like get themselves a human created whole cloth by like registering a social security number, but that's too much work. I don't uh, probably will never happen. And we didn't. I don't think we ever saw synthetic identity during the PayPal years during my time there. Today, synthetic identity is like a huge issue. Yep. There are like literally billions of dollars lost to humans taking out loans where the human doesn't exist. Yeah. Like somehow, and I know how because we fight this every day. Bad guys have figured out how to create these identities at scale. Scalable fraud is the scary kind. You know, one person figuring out how to steal hundred thousand dollars is very unpleasant. But if that was a one sort of a special case scenario, you lick your wounds and try to move on. Right. Somebody figures out how to steal ten dollars every second, Mm-mm. you're out of business. Like yep. you, and if you don't catch it quickly enough and don't figure out how to plug it in, lots of interesting. Uh, New stories. It's always the it's always the one where you you know reveal a little bit, but not enough to uh, to tip the uh, the bad guys off. So last year's explosive concepts and fraud. For a time, some group of criminals figured out. But these are always criminals. Like as much as I enjoy oh, yeah. jousting with them, these are not just bad people. They're actually breaking the law and stealing money that's not theirs. But um, doesn't make them less fun in terms of being opponents. So for a time, a group of criminals figured out how to temporarily basically hijack calls and texts from a selected phone number. This is a very specific to a carrier, very specific to a prefix actually. But if that person could, essentially you would have a phone and I would call you and your phone wouldn't ring, it would ring in someone else's phone. Mm-hmm. And So that person that, can so be if, the second factor authentication. If you have a yes. two-factor yeah. auth, that's yeah. a great way of circumventing it. Which normally, like two-factor auth is pretty bulletproof. No, it's not. No. Not if I can hijack your phone. Right. And uh, most carriers actually have systems in place to catch that and deal with it very, very quickly. But for a time, one carrier had a vulnerability where there existed an opening for about 10 minutes. Once the phone was hijacked, right. they, so ten minutes is a long time. If you can a lot write of damage a, can be done in ten minutes. If you can write a piece of code, you can do a lot of things in ten minutes. So, so that was interesting. Uh, we lost a few drops of blood on that one. We caught it very quickly, and we helped the carrier fix their problems. But that was a definitely a rude awakening. Synthetic identities continue to crop up in all kinds of exciting ways, and most of them are unfortunately money losing ways. 
there's always fraud rings. You know, all, all the classic stuff has always been around where you buy fensible goods and you sell them at a loss and you sort of figure out what's the discount you're willing to take to get rid of something that probably will not be bought at full price because it's obviously stolen goods. So those are all old staples and they're not very hard to catch because you can do velocity controls and figure out sort of a clustering of types of transactions, types of SKUs. You know, all that stuff has been dealt with at some point. The new stuff is always fascinating where like two-factor auth, there's undoubtedly someone somewhere probably in their kitchen cooking up a way to defeat two-factor auth. Like including but not limited to things like one-time password generators like that. That hasn't been defeated, but not yet. Like someone's gonna figure it out. Wow. Yeah, and if it seems like my virtual eyes are lighting up on this podcast, it's because despite the fact <laughs> that it's it's so annoying, it's also really fun to work on. This is what payment geek fun feels like. Yeah, right so here. this is fun for uh, fun for those of us who love payments. So on the other hand, part of what made us super excited about a firm, besides their ability to solve fraud issue, is that um, we heard from merchant partners that the checkout process and service offered by a firm is truly differentiated. You also have a lot of competition in this field. You and I talked about a few of them. How have you been able to continue to create a differentiated product, and what does it take for you to stay ahead of your competitors? Two different things. In general, the company is founded by four software engineers. So the DNA of the company is very much we should be able to out-product, out-build everyone else out there. And so far we have. So we've We've always been very good at figuring out new features, new products, new ways of delivering our experience to the customer that is truly different. And you know, some of it is creativity, where you can say, "Hey, would it be possible to do X?" And then we can build it very quickly and find out if it works. And then the other side is also being able to measure and test and fine tune and iterate at a much, much, much higher pace. So it's not not exactly here's a secret to a firm's success, mm-hmm. but just having a robust engineering approach. And one of the things that we did early on is we spent the first two years building a full stack from scratch. So everything from the general ledger all the way to the underwriting systems is built internally. Mm-hmm. So it allows us to be very nimble with what we want to try and how we want to build it and how we instrument it and optimize it. The other side that I sometimes take for granted, but it's actually very, very powerful. The notion of Sort of sticking true to the mission and making sure that we actually mean it when we say we won't screw our customers, we won't take advantage of them mm. when they misstep or have you know misfortune befalls them of some kind. You know we're we're well into many billions of dollars lent out. We have never charged a penny of late fees, which is very controversial in the industry. There's always eventually some investor, board member, advisor, payment veteran that says, all right, you guys are leaving money on the table. Right. You know, late fees are profit center. Go go to it. And we've certainly heard that advice over and over again. And nothing beats the brand value you get when a customer calls your call center and says, I'm late by a day. I'm so sorry. Right. What's the late fee? Right. And the rep says, Oh, there's no late fee. Don't worry about it. And the person is like, holy mother of God, I'm right. going to tell all my friends about you. Right. And so that's a very powerful thing to build. At a more kind of a retail level, if you let that be your guide as you design the product, you are actively leaving a little bit of money on the table here and there, but you are creating something that competitors cannot compete with, right. especially in the traditional sort of incumbent parts of the world, because there, over time, what used to be kind of a nice little side pocket of cash in a form of late fees or, or you know some some kind of fees. A lot of these have, have now been optimized into being massive profit centers. Most mm-hmm. card issuing banks 
in the non-prime territory, which is sort of not people who are getting their uh, Sapphire reserves and uh, and their platinum cards, yeah. most of those banks derive about half the profit from late fees. Yeah. So if they wanted to come into the space and say, you know what, we're going to be just like a firm, we're going to cut the late fees out, that's going to you know tank their stock price right. because they huge hit on the P&L. they, they can't yeah. uh, can't take the P and L punch. Yeah. So so I think that that's been actually an incredibly valuable thing for our ability to compete. The cool thing about it is that merchants are now figuring out very, very quickly, especially last or a year and a half ago now, Walmart made a fairly public stand against deferred interest, which is a particularly noxious creation of traditional financial services industry where your promise is 0% loan, but in small print it says that if you're a day late or a dollar yeah. short, the interest becomes typically thirty so percent, yeah. but it compounds from time of purchase. So right. you know the, sort of the most ridiculous version of it is you can buy a mattress for 144 month, so a 12 year <laughs> interest free loan. In typical useful cycle of life for a mattress is more like seven years, right. but uh, you can pay it off interest free for 12. Yeah, but but if on be... month 144 mm-hmm. you have not paid up the last dollar, yeah. it's as if it compounded at 29 percent rate. For 144 months, right, and you know that's one easy way of uh, finding yourself near bankrupt, essentially. And yeah. so, one, I think that product should be illegal, but uh, that's my personal opinion. Although I'm never, never one to shy away from saying this to any politician who wants to listen to me on that one. But um, you know, obviously, we certainly wouldn't offer anything remotely similar to this sort of thing. But even with lesser version of this, where it's you know maybe it doesn't quite hit you with 144 months, or right. maybe it's you know something a little bit more gentle, merchants are starting to realize that these are not the kind of products where you want your good name and your brand associated with, with it. Yeah. And most of the traditional products are white labeled, where yeah. it's the merchant's name on the loan. Yeah. One of the things that we did from the very beginning is made it very clear that we're always going to have our name. Fairly prominently in the conversation with the consumer, not because we have to supersede the merchant brand, but because we want the consumer to understand if we're we, different. We're different, but if we treat you badly, your quarrel is with us. Yep. Like it's not the merchant's fault. Yep. We screwed up, and yep. we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Yep. So it's it's worked pretty well. And you also have been able. Some of the merchants that you work with have told us that sales conversion with you has increased by as high as thirty percent. How are you able to do that? That's primarily iteration. There really is. I mean, obviously, there's a secular demand for the product. Like people wouldn't, you wouldn't see 30% increase in volume or conversion or AOV, all these different metrics where we tend to have a double-digit impact, just because it's there. People clearly have responded to the product offering. They think it's good, it's fair, it's transparently priced. All the things that we're trying to make it, but um, it's probably started out at 20. The fact that we are a software. Engineering shop first and foremost, we could continually optimize it to higher and higher numbers, and in some cases, it's above thirty at this point. But right. uh, optimization and iteration is core to how we do our job. How fast do you iterate? Um, we ship code at least once a week, typically many times a week. No, so it's a, there's there's a lot faster than what most banks can do for sure. <laughs> I definitely, if you're comparing yeah. us to banks, that's an unfair fight. Yeah, the yeah. Um, I think somebody told me that they have very proudly switched. To sprint-based software shipping schedule, which I think that's really cool. It's like, yeah, we have a spring sprint, a summer sprint, and a fall sprint. <laughs> and sprint. We, don't, we don't do a winter sprint because that's when people like to take time off. Uh, three like, times a year. So you have a three times a year. Like you sprint for three months. So it sounds like a quarterly sales schedule. Yeah. 
But uh, so you know, we, we sprint once a week or sometimes more often. Good. On the consumer side, you know, I have several million consumers now using a firm, and your NPS score is high. It's in the eighties. Yep. Very difficult to achieve for a fintech company or financial service companies. How have you been able to do that? What techniques have you used that worked for you? No lay fees, obviously, one of them. But what what else? Just sticking to core values. We've never actually set a goal of increasing our net promoter score, in the sense that we always believe that if we treat the customer right and do the right thing and stick to our core mission, it should speak for itself, which it does. But we use a third party to survey our customers, and if the score dips, we ask the question, "What have we done?" as opposed to, "What can we do to bring it back up?" Like we we try to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. It's definitely my belief that. A good product should have a very high net promoter score. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, you're not surveying the general public. You're not asking, do you remember what it is? People right. who haven't used it probably would say, I have no idea. People who have used any product, certainly, hopefully, a firm, should say that was amazing. Right. I'd gladly tell my friends about it because no, I didn't feel screwed. I didn't feel like there was a fee baked in there. I, I should have known about, it, but it didn't warn me. So it's on us to figure out how to keep that front and center of everything we do. But um, don't do anything extra to have our net promoter score high. We definitely do lots and lots of things to make sure we do the right thing for the customer. So, Max, you've also talked about data uh, being a, a real competitive advantage for a firm, and you mentioned you, you've now loaned billions in the billions. Um, so, you must have a growing corpus of data with millions of customers, and I assume that that data is growing rapidly now. How do you, how do you guys use data as an advantage in your company? And when you advise startups. What do you tell them about use of data? Data is definitely the, the lifeblood of everything we do here. Um, so we, we try to measure everything, be very smart about what we store, be very safe about how we store it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one way of disrupting your high net promoter score is not being careful about Good what do you record or not telling people what you're going to record or not being smart about how you store it. Uh, but so far, we've been very, very good about it. The most interesting corpus, it's actually may not have been where you took the question, but it's a question that comes up a lot. How are we able to underwrite better than the average bear? So the typical bank uses a FICO score, and we don't, but that's normally not a good enough answer. And that's right, you should ask a deeper question. Like, how is it possible that some of these startups are able to underwrite so much better, or are they just giving loans to anybody who's asking? Like, right. It's one easy way, by the way, of getting high net promoter scores. Yeah. Give money to everybody. Yeah. We don't. It would be fun to be sort of the, the lender for every person, but obviously everybody has their risk tolerance and yeah. their, their risk constraints. We do approve about 30% higher than the industry. Mm. Different credit tranches we approve a little bit more, but pretty much in every credit profile we approve more than the industry, on average 30% more. The way we're able to do it is actually through data. One, we look at all the standard, quote unquote, typical data the average lender would look at. We tend to buy this data raw and then mine it for features internally and build our own models as opposed to rely on external scores, which is how you can find a little bit of information value or a little bit of a sort of competitive advantage via data. The most interesting data corpus that we've gathered over the years is actually our own history. Mm-hmm. So the information around our users choosing to buy pricing information, we get SKU level data from merchants about what it is they're actually buying, under what circumstances. Sometimes we know things like what marketing program led to what kind of a purchase, how the pricing impacted the person's willingness to convert, how they went about choosing the term. So typically, as an Affirm customer, you get to pick 3, 6, 12, or 6, 12, 
18 months. Some, you know, there are various many choices on the duration. Mm-hmm. And so all of that feeds into answering the basic question, is this a loan that this person is able to safely repay given our ability to estimate their cash flow, which is fundamentally what we're trying to do every time we lend money. Mm-hmm. That's the second question you ask. The first question is typically, is this person who they say they are? Are they trying to rip us off? And those two are fundamentally different, and all of that is answered through data. Like We have pretty much no human intervention. Obviously, all these things are either online or very rapid offline purchases. If a human had to make an underwriting decision, they would make too many mistakes, but also would just take too long. And so everything is done through machine learning, and uh, data is what feeds that. Great. Yeah, when you look back in your career, how have you seen yourself grown as a leader from PayPal to Slide and now to a firm? There are all the obvious stuff. You know, I've gotten, I'm a better communicator. I used right. to freak out about having to speak publicly, and now I don't. Right. Uh, and I used to stress about having to be in a podcast. and. Now I'm on one right now. Right. So so all the sort of things you you learn to do by doing it a lot right. is is kind of self self evident. The thing that I actually realized fairly recently is I've never really worked for anyone. Like even my time at Google, my boss, quote unquote, was one of the co-founders, and so my interaction with him was that of a kind of a entrepreneur to entrepreneur. I sort of told him what I was going to work on, and we agreed on things, and sometimes we didn't. But I've never actually had a relationship where I had. Concerns about my ability to make my next promotion, or worry about my compensation structure and fairness, right. like those things you just don't have to worry about as a founder. And right. you have other things you need to be really stressed out about. <laughs> and it's, a, it's a more stressful job, perhaps, than the other way around. But to be a good manager, a good leader, you actually have to understand that side of the equation too. Like sometimes, I would hear someone tell me, "Oh, I'm really concerned about this." I'm like. Oh, what? Why you even worry yeah. about this thing? Like that—that's not a like that would never happen here. Right. Like, well, but it happened to me in my previous job. Right. And no matter how many times you say, but this is a very different kind of company. You have people that go through life meeting bad bosses and yeah. seeing bad behaviors, and they come to your company, and as much as they've heard that this is a great place and great culture, and people really take themselves very differently here. They still have their concerns and you know, the bad habits that they've seen in the past. So right. just understanding that and relating to it and being able to speak to people in the way that makes them feel more comfortable. Like this is a different kind of company, something that I think I probably learned only at a firm. The other thing that uh, kind of an interesting reflection to PayPal and back. In many ways, PayPal and a firm are quite similar, right? We're building a financial yeah. services company. We have these lofty aspirations, kind of surround ourselves with these really bright people, mostly technically savvy people that were trying to sort of use software to fix these really old decrepit systems. Big difference, at PayPal, we never actually sat down to write our core values down. Mm. Our core values mm. were fundamentally commercial in nature. We were building the new world currency and that right. was the plan. And that was kind of enough. And at the time it didn't bother me. It was sort of like, all right, we're we're doing this and that's what we're doing. And the growth was amazing. The team was fantastic. We're all sorts of really smart people debating all day long and sort of you know writing code all night long, basically. And the, one of the things that I really wanted to do with a firm, I wanted to sort of capture the opportunity to define what the company is beyond its commercial aspirations. Right. Mm-hmm. And writing down the core values and debating them and asking like what is highest order bit and what isn't, what follows from a core value and what doesn't. Not something I did at PayPal and. Initially, I started doing this mostly because like, I've never done it before, and I hear of all these companies that have their core values written on their walls, and right. I want to try that too. It was more right. of an experiment. 
by the time I was done with the first iteration, I was like, this is really valuable. This is one, the level of catharsis you get, just like knowing what matters to you and kind of setting down rules of how the company's going to be run is very helpful because then you know what kind of people you want to work with you. People right. that would be okay kind of bending some of those core values probably not going to survive if you really right. mean it. Right. And you kind of have to go through the like what really matters and what really doesn't. Right. And so that was a big difference and I don't know if that's sort of a, you know, doing things in my 20s versus my 40s or having 20 years of extra experience or just the time is different now and core values matter more, but uh, I really enjoyed that a lot more than I thought I would. Did you come up with the core values kind of before founding the company on your own, or was this a, a, a team effort with with others in the company? So I wrote down the original set of core values with my co-founders. Pretty much as we started, the company actually had an interesting beginning where we spent about a year toying around with various concepts that were all flavors of what a firm ultimately became, but mm-hmm. we weren't quite ready to go jump off and do it. And then once we were kind of, okay, this is a thing, we're going to go do it, that's roughly around the same time as I wrote down the core values. Interestingly enough, as soon as we started hiring people, I made a point of publicizing the core values and saying, look, here's, here's what we stand for, here's what we will and will not do. There were a lot of questions, people saying, well, okay, so you have this core value of transparency, what does that really mean? Like Transparency is like, so can I know everyone's comp? Do we, <laughs> can I sit in on a board meeting? And I had to answer a lot of these things. And right. I mean, these are kind of cute ones, but more like, you know, is it our core value that we never charge late fees, or is that an outcome of a core value? And if it's a core value, why didn't we write it down? Like, well, no, actually, that's an outcome of something else. And so I ended up writing another document about a year later titled Affirm Operating Principles, right. where it was a much longer form where it's sort of like, here's how to interpret the core values. It's like, wow, I'm like writing commentary on the gospel of Affirm. It's, like, <laughs> it's a little bit of a religious experience. And then that actually became kind of a very useful document that I would send people like, hey, read this before you join the company. If you're right. willing to abide by these rules, oh, that's great. Really cool. And then, so I thought it's actually public. If you search for Affirm Operating Principles, you'll find it. I published yep. it a few years ago. And then, about a year later, I realized that that thing was way too long. And so I sat down with a couple of executives, this is like four years into the company, and rewrote the core values. Like the same core values, same numbers, same everything, but basically boiled down into like a page you can memorize or you know, a few, few paragraphs that you, you can actually memorize as opposed to this multi page operating principles document that I put together. But I definitely, as I am prone to, obsessed and probably perhaps overinvested in like really finding the optimal. Way of communicating this stuff, but it's good in the sense that people now kind of know what to what to look up if they're like, huh, I wonder if this is within our ethical bounds or not. Like, I, it's it's fairly descriptive. That's very cool. Another question on on culture and and building the company. You're an immigrant, and you you've prioritized diversity and inclusion as a, a core precept here at a firm. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a hot topic among startups that Hans and I and and others at GGV are involved with, of course, and and beyond just GGV these days. Two questions for you on, on this focus on diversity and inclusion. One, um, how have you done it? You, you've been pretty successful so far. And two, what have the benefits been for you? The two are kind of one and the same, actually. I think the, the same thing can be said about both questions. So the thing that I found as sort of a guiding principle to the previous point in dealing and thinking about DNI 
was actually answering the question not in terms of how do I improve my DNI numbers or how do I hit my DNI goals. I think that those are all kind of misplaced second order things. Like you want those numbers to be good. You want to be able to say, hey, we're proud to have increased our underrepresented group participation by X percent this year, and like all the things that you should be doing mm-hmm. as a good CEO, good citizen. Like all that makes sense. But fundamentally, the business need behind it is you want the best possible team. One part of that is you want to get varying opinions, varying backgrounds, understanding of customers through actually having people that look like your customers as opposed to everybody who looks like they went to the same school. But the way of accomplishing that, the way we went about it, has been successful and sort of allowed us to achieve all the numerical goals. There's always the very best person in an underrepresented group. The thing about it they're not necessarily where you think the very best people are according to your intuition. So I went right. to the University of Illinois. Of course, the obvious thing is I can go and recruit people at UI. And we do every year because that's my alma mater and right. I love being there. And I kind of know what the university students mm-hmm. there look like. And thankfully, it's actually been increasing as diversity too. So it's good because I have an unfair advantage when I try to convince students to graduate and come to a firm. But the other thing you can and should do, and what we've done, is you go to schools where you don't normally find a lot of other tech companies looking for talent because that's just not the obvious place. So basically, you fish in underfished territories, and you don't lower your standards, you don't compromise, you don't say, "Oh, because you're going to fit my checkbox, right. I'm going to make a, make room for you." Quite the opposite. You say, "You are an amazing person with the best talents possible, and I found you because I was willing to go to some school or some place or some area where." People don't even travel here because there's not obviously computer scientists that like to hang out here, sort of mm-hmm. thing. And so we've been very successful recruiting from historically majority X, where X is your favorite underrepresented group, schools sure. and places and makes a lot groups. Of like I, you know, every time I go to recruit on campus, I try to make time to sit down with not just the computer science clubs, but computer science for. Blank. There's plenty of groups now that are specifically designed to attract underrepresented groups as participants, and inevitably there's some amazing young talent. people there, yep. amazing talent that you can maybe be the first person they interact from Silicon Valley saying, That's "Hey, right. I want you to come work here." Yeah, and by the way, you. we hired someone just like you yeah. a year ago, and yep. so it, it also begets itself once yes. you start showing that this is a place where whatever your kind is, your kind is not just welcome; it thrives. It's the best place for. Then people want to join, and cool. so we've we've done pretty well there. We've just announced one really really cool female executive, and we're about to announce a few more. So I'm, oh, that's great! I'm I'm, I'm I'm doing especially well on my male to female executive ratio right now, right? Which I'm quite happy about. We're seeing more and more of our companies building a second or third office with tech talent. You're doing one in Pittsburgh. We have seen um, in some portfolio like Slack in Denver, Open Door in Phoenix, and Atlanta. And what made you decide on? Uh, Pittsburgh, and how did you come to this decision to have a second office in the first place? Like everything else, it was a uh, one of these thirty-six variable optimization where uh, someone here did a ton of research as to like best place for criteria one, two, three through thirty-six, and yeah. everything from price of real estate, access to diverse computer science talent, to flights to our other offices. No, frequency of flights, times of flights, stuff like that. So it, it was not pulled out of a hat. I guess that's the short version of it. Um, no. But I'm generally very bullish on not building offices in Silicon Valley, in particular, because the competition for talent has gotten completely insane. No. But it's also just 
really, really, really hard to retain talent here. Like right. even if you're successful at attracting it, there's so many opportunities and people understandably kind of want to try out everything. So there's real sort of business sense in finding places. Where if people want to live in Pittsburgh or Denver or Nashville, being one of the few companies that have a really exciting place to work is makes it a little bit easier than being in Silicon Valley where the choices are infinite. Yep. The benefits are obvious, but also a lot of companies prefer all the you know engineers and product people to be in the same building on the same floor so they can talk to each other and be more efficient that way, despite a higher cost. How do you solve those two issues? I think that's generally true if you could have floors that could comfortably house 500 people, which is roughly where we are now. I've never seen a building that... Uh, had a floor plate where one floor could have 500 people, probably not a safe building to be in anyway. Last time I've seen a building that big in that flat was uh, 1840 Embarcadero PayPal office. I think it was like a former dealership or something. It was like <laughs> one huge floor. But I think we're past the stage where we could actually fit all our engineers and product people and designers onto one floor. So you kind of have to, uh, like even in San Francisco, we now have two buildings where we sort of cross the street all day long, and uh, soon enough I think we'll have a third one. At some point you end up becoming comfortable with having offices that are in different time zones. But our New York office has been both thriving and a pretty cool place and a fun place to go visit if you're based in San Francisco and want to go travel to New York. So long as you're able to maintain the culture and if you go there and it feels like home and you come back and you know it's the same vibe, I think it's not that difficult to deal with a distributed set of offices. The difficult part is the cold start problem. Like if you're going to a new city and you're not fully committed, you're going to end up hiring one or two people and promptly they will leave because there's always one or two cool companies to work for. And if there's a critical mass of people there and they're excited to come to work, you don't want to be the guy who goes into a dark office and flips on the light switch because you're the only one who works there or one of the two people who work there. So it's actually more of a can we convince ourselves that there's a critical mass of 20 employees, 30 employees that will be here if we choose to open an office in City X? I think after that, it's it's a little bit easier. Right. As Hans mentioned, uh, a lot of our companies are doing similar things with a lot of the constraints in, in Silicon Valley. And I think it's fundamentally a good thing because obviously Pittsburgh, you know, to take as an example for you guys, right? You've got Uber, you've got Carnegie Mellon, you've got a, a lot of great talent that's that's grown up in Pittsburgh. And my bet is you'll have a lot of luck hiring great people there, and eventually for our business, you know, the the, the next great entrepreneurs are going to be the folks who get hired into a firm in Pittsburgh or Slack in Denver or Open Door in Atlanta, who then go start their companies. And so I think this this is kind of the beginning of a lot more startup, uh, yeah, startup activity in other in other markets. Yeah, speaking of having different offices in different places, uh, one of the Hot topic last year in the Valley is that can you work smart or do you have to work hard? Implying that if you work hard, you may not be working smart. What's your schedule like and how do you feel about that? I think founder CEOs generally work 999, where uh, <laughs> <laughs> try to uh, try, try to make a couple extra days somehow. I roll out of bed typically between 4 and 5 a.m. And uh, if I'm falling asleep before 11, that was that was a that was a comfortable day. Right. Even uh, even today, as a billionaire, this is what you would do. I don't know if there's any external factors that impact that. Uh-huh. I just that's that's how I'm wired. Over the years, I've definitely recognized that what they used to call FaceTime sometimes is critical, and other times is an absolute you know horse bleep because uh, 
as often as not, you could sit in front of a computer and type as hard as you can and put out no useful code or no useful product specs or no no useful spreadsheets. And so, there's definitely work smart is is very real and it's really important. Sometimes you have a moment where you have to sprint, and if you're sprinting and you're doing it with a bunch of colleagues, you're better off being in the same room. And yeah, it does sometimes. You know, I can name a product that got built here. Starting in the middle of the Christmas break, where a bunch of engineers. This is a seven-year-old company. You know, these people are not all founders, right. and they were really motivated. We have to hit a deadline, and a bunch of people basically locked themselves in a conference room and were just going as hard as they could. And I don't think there were there was the seventh day where they took it to rest. They mm-hmm. just worked until it was done. Sometimes that happens, and as a leader, you have to be prepared to lead by example. Like yeah. if, if you're going to sure. have that, you better be there with them. Like the nine nine six for everybody except the CEO or except the you know, that whoever doesn't work, very long. doesn't work. If people look at like, well, how how is that person special? But uh, I do think that nine nine six is not the solution to every problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're far better off saying this is something that needs a all hands on deck approach. Yep. And in that situation, it's really rare that somebody says, you know what, I have to go home because my work life balance is hurting. It's like work life balances work right now because we need you and we need everybody. Yeah. And a lot of times, if it's not that, telling someone, well, you better stay at your desk. Yes, it's Friday and 4 p.m. and you're thinking happy hour, but instead, we're going to make you work through Saturday just to train that sort of self harm muscle. That's also stupid. Right. So I think work smart is generally more my speed, but. I'm no stranger to, uh, to, to, the work to, hard to, part. to work hard part, which I think is generally, so long as you have the ability to work hard when necessary and you're willing to put it to work, you have an advantage. And I think if you just bang your head against the wall, it's your head that's going to crack. So it's probably not the best use of your skills. But if you occasionally find a soft spot and you put in a little bit of extra elbow grease, it pays off. Great. I know from talking to you in the past, you have been a admirer of uh, what Tencent and WeChat have built in in China. What do you think about when people say, "Oh, you know, China is just full of copycats. They steal our technology, they steal our ideas, and then they go clone it." And since the country has so many people, they can make a lot of money off it. You know, I think there was a time when majority of very successful Chinese companies could be easily traced to. An American inspiration, let's be charitable and call it that, or maybe something that they cloned. I think at this point, I can name at least a handful of very successful companies that are uniquely Chinese that were not copycats by any stretch of imagination and were created and grown to tens of billions of dollars of value in a uniquely Chinese space, in a uniquely Chinese way. Such as? I think Meituan is pretty special in that sense. I think it's kind of a Combination of a bunch of things you could sort of stick a finger at in the US, but the fact that it's such a tightly coupled network yeah. and the uh, mm. the endpoints of delivery are completely unique to the Chinese market, like yeah. that just doesn't work here, yeah. and yet it works in China, although it's completely counterintuitive. I think the original QQ product was obviously named and effectively <laughs> carbon copied off of ICQ, but if you look at their creative destruction approach to themselves over and over and over again, yeah. It's really hard to claim that they've done nothing new. Right. At this point, it is an unbelievably different product. They pioneered the use of very small transactions as a for-pay model. Yes. Like a lot of this came to the U.S. from China. I would argue it's still kind of a haphazardly done in the U.S. Yes, while yes. in China, it's you know 
the business model for a yep. lot of these companies. Even some of the more kind of a less my speed, more uh, more of those who enjoy uh, entertainment companies, but TikTok and all the yep. new concepts in short form video, yep. kind of the, the new Instagram competitors, things like that. Those are all fairly unique. I mean, you could argue that these are not profoundly new business models, but a lot of them are profoundly new product conceptualizations, and it's pretty different. And WeChat. Uh, I think WeChat was. I mean, at this point, WeChat is hardly a new product. Sure. It's been around for a decade, I think. But even WeChat as the kind of the the super app, yep. which was it's still as a concept in its infancy in the U.S. But uh, in China, every successful app is, has now drifted into this territory, become a super app, super app, and just That's category. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's fairly new. So yeah, I, I would be no longer be inclined to say, oh, there's no, nothing original. If anything. And we don't operate in China, and uh, I make it my business to sort of track of what's happening there, in part because who knows, maybe I'll get inspired. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm no stranger to uh, to inspiration from other parts, so uh, it's foolish to declare anyone pure copycat. You'll right. miss you'll miss original ideas that you might want to copycat yourself. Right. Okay, Max. So we're at the uh, the end of this episode, which means you're on the hot seat. We're going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. Just say the first thing that comes in your mind. Oh boy. So first off, who's an entrepreneur or a company that you admire most, and why? Toby Lutke at Shopify, I think, is friggin' amazing. Yeah. I think mm, that company right. is. I mean, all the obvious answers are obvious, right. but uh, yeah. I think he gets a lot less fanfare yes. than he deserves. He, yeah. He's a stunningly successful entrepreneur and very strategic, very smart, super unassuming. I, I admire him in part because I like the way he conducts himself, as opposed to people that did something amazing and are not too shy to talk about it. <laughs> Got it. What's something you read recently that you would recommend? I read a lot of trashy spy novels, and I don't recommend them, but they're <laughs> great to take the mind off the uh, the pain that is entrepreneurship. I read a book called Habit, which is a, I read also a lot of psychology books, and this is a good one, just explaining how brain forms habit patterns and how to disrupt them and how mm-hmm. to rekey habits. I'm rereading Here with a Thousand Faces, mm. which is a great sort of a. If you need a, a long book to blow your mind right. and not have to do anything with Silicon Valley, that's a great right. book. That's what I'm reading right now. Good choice. Cool. Okay, what's one piece of advice you like to give to founders? It's a bad idea to start a company alone. It's really, really mm. lonely if you're a sole founder, CEO. Like you, you won't know how lonely it is until it's too late, and then it can be just a very dark place to crawl out of. And if you're doing this with someone you don't know well, think of it as choosing a life mate. Like you don't know how long you're going to be together and you don't want to find out that you really dislike this person either over trivial things like oh my god this person has terrible personal hygiene and we're stuck together as co-founders that's a bad thing to find out but worst thing to find out is I don't like this person because their ethics are not exactly the same mm. as mine so you know, one don't do it alone to get to know the person you're doing it with yeah Elad Gill who was on uh, an earlier episode of Founder Real Talk mentioned the three things you need to do as a founder, one, raise money, two, set direction, three, don't fight with your co-founder. <laughs> Keep it simple. Yeah, that, that's pretty good. Uh, last question is, is, can you see a firm as a global company one day? For sure. Uh, I see it as a global company very soon. The question is which country first and how quickly the second. Great. Great. Max, thanks so much for joining us. This was fantastic. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. 
If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>